according to the Cisco annual security report, there's a 12x demand over supply for security professionals. That means that there are 12 open security positions for every certified, qualified, or experienced person able to fill the role. With odds like that, anyone entering the cybersecurity profession will have a lucrative job for life. Welcome to Elevate Ed, a space for conversations around the intersection of industry and higher education. From the Mile High City of Denver, Colorado, this podcast is brought to you by the University of Denver's College of Continuing and Professional Studies, University College, where we are elevating experiences for the adult learner through career-focused credentials. I am thrilled to be talking today with Richard Stainings. Richard is a globally renowned thought leader, author, public speaker, and advocate for improved cybersecurity across the healthcare and life sciences industry, an industry in which he has focused for much of his career. Richard has lived in 30 countries and assisted in the success of innovative startups and many of the world's most successful public companies. Some of his more notable successes include work for Amgen, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, Cisco, CSC, Intermountain Healthcare, Peace Health, PwC, Intel, Microsoft, and Zurich Financial, just to name a few. Richard is currently Chief Security Strategist for Silera, a pioneer in the space of medical device and HIoT security. He is the author of Cyber Thoughts, a leading healthcare cybersecurity blog. He also teaches graduate courses here at University College in the cybersecurity and health informatics programs. Richard, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Cindy, for uh, inviting me today. Absolutely. Well, let's start by just laying the foundation, if you will, at its core. What is cybersecurity? Well, it's been called many things over many years. I mean, uh, those of you who've been around for a while will have probably recall the name of information security or data security, but essentially cybersecurity is what we've bundled all of the digital aspects uh, of security together. I'll, I'll use a definition used by CISA, the, the Federal Cybersecurity Infrastructure Agency, if I may, which defines cybersecurity as the art of protecting networks, devices, and data from unauthorized access or criminal use and the practice of ensuring confidentiality, integrity, and availability of information. So, so what does that mean? What does, what does CIA mean, the confidentiality, uh, integrity, and availability of information? Well, it means protecting the privacy of information that should not be made public, things like uh, personally identifiable information, personal health information, uh, personal financial information, for example. Um, Integrity means about making sure that the information that is held in a bank or on an online forum or in any data repository is integral. It hasn't been changed. It hasn't been altered or, or otherwise adjusted in any way, shape or form. And availability means that the data and the systems that's 
that support access to that data are available at any time or place, right? As as required, they're not being held to ransom, for example. They're not subject to what we call a denial of service attack where they're no longer available. And we've seen a few websites over the Christmas period recently that have essentially gone down to, uh, to DDoS attacks, fairly minor ones, but this is unfortunately an attack against the availability of systems. So what does all this mean? Well, today, just about everything we do has some interaction with a computer of sorts, right? Whether you're doing online shopping, uh, your banking, entertainment, gaming, education, transportation, healthcare, even making a simple phone call involves the use of, uh, of a computer of sorts. Most of us have got a smartphone these days, right? Long, long gone are the days of rotary phones that were connected via a wire to the wall and out to the, uh, the local EO for, for communication across the country. They went digital back in the 80s, and uh, they've now gone to essentially VoIP voice over IP type telephony services in today's cellular. In my house, even the the manual tasks of, of vacuuming and mopping the floor are relying upon IoT computing devices that do it for me, right? Mm-hmm. Our lives are dependent on IT, whether it's you know traditional IT or, or IoT, the internet of things that now dominates a lot of the gadgets that we have around our house. And when this stuff breaks, we find ourselves unable to do things, which is not only a major inconvenience, but it could be life-threatening, particularly if it's you know in a healthcare environment. So consider IT failing at your local hospital. What happens to ICU patients on life support when the computer systems go down, right? What happens to an emergency room patient that goes in to see a doctor, but none of the IT systems are available in order to diagnose that patient? maybe with a CT scan or an MRI, the computerized labs that may process blood work to, to, to work out what the patient uh, may be suffering from, or any of the other systems. We're now totally reliant upon IT, and, and keeping that secure has become uh, absolutely critical for all of us. Um, yeah, it's the, scary to think about. It, it is, it is. The trouble is that we've built our current IT systems without much thought for security and and, you know, in the mad rush to find, you know, to get technology to market, we failed to find all of the bugs uh, and to go around fixing them. We've also engaged in a, in a cyber war with pariah nation states uh, like China, Russia, North Korea, and to a lesser degree, Iran, who are using cyber as a weapon to weaken Western economies and their democracies. And at the same time, we've got, you know, a rise in cyber extortion and cyber theft campaigns being waged by cyber criminals the world over, but notably by you know the Russian mafia and other crime syndicates around the globe and and you know western democracies like New Zealand for example you don't see the same level of adoption of IoT gadgets or IT systems right they're notably their health system in many of the the district health boards are still paper based manila files whereas we in the US have, have digitalized everything and that digitalization is allowing us greater interoperability so that your primary care physician or general practitioner is not operating in a vacuum as they would have been 20 years ago back in the days of manila files because they don't have access to that information in front of them but I imagine that also makes us a lot more vulnerable. It, it does. It does. And, and unfortunately, it's a weak spot in our armor, a chink in our armor that certain nefarious nation states uh, and obviously a rapidly developing uh, criminal underworld have used in order to, to attack us. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the crime syndicates are organized like a Fortune 500. 
Um, they have <clears throat> different divisions that focus in different areas of developing exploits, finding weaknesses, gaining footholds on the network, exfiltrating data, and holding data to ransom. And each of those are, are companies within the syndicate, and they are they're highly organized. They've got affiliates. They advertise on the dark web for services. They advertise for hackers. They have 24 by 7 customer service for anyone that needs to call in to find out how to pay their ransom. I mean, compare that with calling your local cell phone company and trying to find service, particularly at the weekends or night, nighttime, right? That's amazing. I had no idea. Yeah. So protecting our industries, our businesses, our schools and government from cyber attack is critical. And to be honest, we need all the help we, we can get. We're currently outnumbered by most estimates of at least five to one. That means there are five times as many attackers um, attacking the foundations uh, of our business and our society as we have defenders who are defending. And you only need, as a perpetrator, as an attacker, you only need to find one chink in the armor in order to get in. Whereas a defender, you need to protect every chink in every ar every piece of armor in order to keep the bad guys out. So you can see that this is this is an uphill battle. This is a challenge. Absolutely, which leaves a lot of opportunity in the job market. And it and it sounds like it's a very noble field to get into. Absolutely, we need all the help that we can get in this particular space, and. We are onboarding thousands of new cybersecurity professionals every year, but it's not enough. So, you know, anyone who's sitting out there right now <laughs> listening to this podcast uh, and, uh, is considering, you know, what they want to do when they grow up or what they want to do when they grow up a little bit more. And then, you know, there are there are opportunities in, in this particular space. And, you know, I would I'd advise them to to look into it further. So let's talk a little about that. How does somebody position themselves for a job in cybersecurity? Well, I think some of it comes down to background and experience. Some of it comes down to aptitude. Some of it comes down to desire and you know tenacity. Knowledge and proficiency with IT is a great starting place, but security is not just about technologies and security technology controls like firewalls and endpoint protection or the ability to red team and penetration test. I mean, that was kind of the, the way into security you know, 10 years ago. Today, it's a lot more about process and policy, determining who should have access to systems and data, not just the control that enforce that access. It's also about, you know, simple things like training users to think before they click, and other simple things like recognizing a, a phishing attack or some other forms of, of socializing information out of an unwitting person who thinks that they're doing the right thing by providing that. Security is a component of enterprise risk management. So understanding and being able to calculate risk is fundamental. Security can be an enabler of new functionality and business ventures, and inadequate security can quickly close a business, as we've seen with some of the ransomware attacks. Wow. In uh, that little bit that you said right there, I was able to hear a few of the roles or job titles that people would do in the cybersecurity field. Can you unpack that a little bit more? If somebody were to think, okay, this is something I'm very interested in, maybe I have some background and experiences that might lend to this kind of work, then what would be the next step in somebody really figuring out a role that is the right fit for them? 
them? Well, I think it it takes a village to raise a child and it takes a wide variety of skills to secure an organization. As I mentioned earlier, the most important aspect, in my opinion, <clears throat> is really aptitude. You have yeah. to be able to pick yourself up when you get knocked to the floor and to get back back into the fight. And unfortunately, security professionals, we get knocked around a little bit, figuratively, obviously, uh, mm-hmm. because, you know, we're, we're up against some pretty tough odds here. Working in cybersecurity is firstly, it's not a nine to five job either. It's something you do because you enjoy a challenge and you have a passion for what you do. So passion is, is critical as well as drive and tenacity. Um, You could be working currently in network engineering or application development or desktop support or and make a lateral move very easily into security, taking those skills that you acquired over the over previous years and applying them in a security domain and and wrapping that with a security conceptual lens, if if we say, about how do I secure my network environment? How do I secure my application development? Or how do I code applications that can be used to enhance security controls? You could have experience in in risk management, in audit and compliance, and easily transition to a role in security, performing security audits, right? Or security risk assessments or compliance assessments. You could have a degree in public policy or medicine or law and decide to apply your skills to cybersecurity. In short, your background doesn't really matter if you're prepared to learn and have the right aptitude and motivation. There are many, many roles in cybersecurity and being able to to bring experience of of working within those roles, like medicine, for example, and apply them to cybersecurity brings unique perspective because you will understand the workflows of a hospital or the workflows of a patient treatment regimen. It would seem to me that somebody who really understood a particular industry system process, even if they didn't have any of the know-how in the cybersecurity space, but to understand where those risks might present themselves in a particular industry or process would be a real benefit. Right. And be able to say, hang on, this is critical to the the workflow process here and if this process gets interrupted then there is a patient safety concern and patients may die or may be negatively impacted by the unavailability of IT systems so bringing those skills together is something it's something that really enriches this profession and you know we're the industry is being swelled the cybersecurity industry is being swelled by developers uh, and people that have intricate knowledge of how to develop IoT systems, for example, or, or that have experience in working with artificial intelligence or machine learning, which is a form of artificial intelligence, and building out systems that can, you know, can help protect uh, organizations against the next wave of, of attacks. But similarly, people that have come in from a different industry are also bringing in massive levels of experience in that particular space. I spoke to a, a new security professional at a hospital in Australia last week, and um, he'd come in as a as a biomedical uh, engineer managing medical devices. Come over to the security group, being hired by the CISO to kind of head that particular division because this was a, a massive area of risk and concern to this healthcare organisation that runs. Many, many, many hospital systems and and even more clinics around the world. And uh, they realized that they didn't understand how medical devices work. They didn't understand 
the potential to exploit those devices by criminals and the implications of what happens when a device is compromised, a drug library is changed in an, in a network connected infusion pump, right? Or the pacemaker is reprogrammed to kill the patient rather than keep the patient alive or oh the gosh. radiological output of a of a uh, radiological system like a ct scan or x-ray system or cancer treatment system is changed to literally fry the patient rather than you know contain a, a cancer or to examine and scan uh, a particular cancer or uh, growth um, in the body. And these are all the risks that, that face just one industry, healthcare. You can imagine what the risks are that face the power distribution systems of, of the United States that provide electricity to all of us in business, in our offices and, and our homes, or to the nuclear regulatory body that oversees the generation of nuclear power plants. Right, or to the chemical factories, chemical plants around the country that produce agricultural fertilizers, for for one of better example that could easily be exploited and you know could be could be turned into uh, one massive explosion. Right, these are all critical infrastructure industries that are protected by an extra set of rules and require extra sets of of cybersecurity. So bringing in people that understand these particular industries is critical if we are going to defend against the next waves of attack. And most of us in the space didn't you know, wake up one day and say, you know what, I'm going to go to school, I'm going to become a cybersecurity professional, I'm going to get a, a bachelor's a degree in cybersecurity, and, and off I go with my knapsack on my back. Most of us came in laterally because there was no career path into cybersecurity, you know, 30 years ago when, when I was uh, setting out, you know, and, and you know, there are avenues now to come in as an entry level person into this space, but there are such a variety of roles that, you know, you could you could be engaged in in this particular space based upon your aptitude, based upon what you enjoy to do most and based upon the skills that you can bring. You may have done some computer programming when you were in high school and love it, right? On the other hand, you may be a policy wonk, right? And love writing policies and procedures and standards and, or project managing the implementation of, of different security controls. There are so many aspects uh, of cybersecurity that, that you could be involved in. My advice to students or to, you know, those considering a, a jump to this profession are, you know, get your feet wet, figure out what you like to do. And if you don't like what you're doing right now, then make a lateral move into some other aspect of, of cybersecurity cybersecurity, bringing those skills that you've got with you to that particular uh, new role and enrich that role, right? Yeah. Do you find that courses are a good way to get your feet wet, as you say? Like, do you find that students, as they are taking courses, they naturally start to figure out uh where they want to go deeper. I think I think that's a, a great way in. There are many ways in and, and we can talk about, you know, how do you how do you get into cybersecurity in a bit. But I think, you know, doing a degree, having a broad exposure to cybersecurity is, is a great first start, right? I think an internship is equally a great first start sure. as well. We find a lot of students, in fact, I've been involved in, in various roles of, of assisting 
you know, undergraduate students in their summer internships. When I was at Cisco, we rotated our summer interns through a number of different programs. And the most popular was working in the, the SOC, the Security Operations Center, because students were exposed to, you know, some pretty cutting edge technology and some pretty exciting stuff, you know, up on the threat boards, looking at perpetrators trying to break in to Cisco's networks or to customer networks and, you know, thwarting those attacks, blocking and tackling those attacks, kicking, kicking systems that have been compromised off of the network and uh, blocking command and control systems out on the, on the internet. It's, it was, it was very exciting. Other internships focused upon, you know, application development, developing security tools and controls, or, you know, getting into the bowels of the iOS operating system that runs, you know, Cisco switches, for example, and, and other appliances. Uh, obviously, if you're strong in coding or other IT disciplines, then a technology role may be a good start for you. If you're strong in softer skills, then focus on those first. You know, there, there are different types of dig- degree programs in cybersecurity, some that are highly technical in nature. Others are light on technology, depending upon whether you want to enroll in a program in the the School of Engineering, for example, or the School of Public Policy. You know, at DU, I teach cybersecurity courses at University College, which tends to be lighter on the technologies and heavier on things like policy, risk, strategy, and leadership. Uh, There are even courses at the Corbell School of International Studies in cybersecurity diplomacy, cyber espionage, cyber terrorism and criminal investigation um, into counterintelligence and cybercrime. So there are there are footholds, many opportunities here for you to get your foot your feet wet and to get a broad understanding of cybersecurity without going necessarily working in the profession. That totally makes sense. Has the pandemic changed the the landscape for cybersecurity or has that had much of an impact? Yeah, totally and, and absolutely. Um, it's turned it's turned the industry on its head. It's turned yeah. all of its heads, right? <laughs> I I would imagine it, it did. And and we in the US uh, are very technically adapt, technically advanced in some areas. Other countries, you know, are more advanced than than we have been in certain uh, other aspects as well. But I think the big jump was the fact that companies uh, or organizations in the US were forced to transition almost overnight. Uh, from a work to a work from home environment, right? We went from companies supporting 20,000 staff working in one or two office locations to 20,000 staff working from 20,000 different locations, most of which are now working at, at home in a uh, network shared with kids doing schoolwork or playing computer games. What's more, the internet connections for most of us at home are protected by a $70 router firewall that probably has never been patched and updated or the default passwords never being changed, right? These were probably purchased commercially, installed and forgotten about. Compare that to an office location with a $70,000 set of firewalls maintained by a team of professional security engineers and patched monthly. And you can smell the opportunity for cyber criminals. Oh my gosh, yes. (laughs) Oh, wow. I mean, I'm like having a moment just thinking about it. And anyone that's just their heartbeat has just increased, go figure out what firewall router you're running at home and see if you can uh, log into the thing. Everything's on the internet, including the passwords. So if you've lost your password, don't worry, because the cyber criminals have got lists of them. (laughs) 
that can easily get into your home network and go patch the thing, right? Go change the default password. Go change the time zone to whatever time zone you work in rather than Cupertino, California, which uh, is normally the default for uh, for most of these things. Yeah, I wrote an article on this at Cyber Thoughts at the beginning of the pandemic when work from home became a buzzword of the day and it got some pretty big traction. I think it also caused a few heart attacks in a, in a few households that, you know, had, had not you know look diligently at uh, their own security and, and put in place the adequate you know controls procedural controls to make sure that uh, their systems were being updating updated the pandemics also changed the way that companies deliver services though look at retail sector uh, and the massive growth of amazon over the last two years you know if a company didn't have a web presence and the ability for customers to order online they probably weren't selling anything during the pandemic and they probably don't exist today Right. Many of those organizations that didn't have a website, didn't have online ordering capability are probably no longer open. Right. Look, look at healthcare. When COVID hit, no one in their right mind wanted to visit the doctor for a sore neck or a, a you know, a, a hurting knee and risk catching COVID in the waiting room, despite all of the precautions of masks and, you know, sanitation bottles, hand sanitizer, every, you know, and while ER and ICU doctors in hospitals were pulling double and sometimes triple shifts dealing with, you know, COVID patients, general practitioners and primary care physicians were twiddling their fingers. They had no business. You know, that was largely until telehealth and telemedicine was finally put in place. You know, and that's really changed the healthcare treatment paradigm today. You know, we can all make an appointment online to visit our doctor via Skype or Zoom or some other technology and have a face-to-face with our doctor safe from our home. No need to drive to the doctor's office. No need to wait in the virus-infected waiting room for a long period of time because the doctor's run over. You know, you have an appointment for 2.15 and the doctor's online at 2.15 and you get your 15 minutes of fame with the doctor and it's thank you, goodbye. You know, your prescriptions are in the mail or you can pick them up from your pharmacy. Other countries like Australia have had remote medical services for decades, you know, going back to shortwave radio and they've adopted telehealth and telemedicine in droves right the way across the country going back, you know, more than 15 years. We, uh, to, we in the US essentially got caught with our pants down and it took a global pandemic to bring about a change in a long overdue healthcare technology. But that technology had to be secured. And at first it wasn't. So that raised some challenges about how do we ensure that video and uh, audio is encrypted in transmission. And we had to make a few adjustments to a few regulations until the technologies had allowed for us to, to catch up. Telehealth is like many other different technologies across industries that were released before they were adequately tested and secured. And we seem to be constantly playing catch up with security. This creates a gap, one that I like to to call the attacker's arbitrage, and one that cyber criminals were and still are quick to exploit. If we look at some of the reports out there, according to Deloitte, companies are accelerating their digital transformation and cybersecurity, especially since COVID. And this is now a major concern. The reputational, operational, legal and compliance implications could be considerable if cybersecurity risks are neglected. And we've seen some massive breaches since, since COVID, right? I mean, it's been all over the newspapers. So, of course, the tech industry has historically had quite a bit of gender imbalance. How does that look for cybersecurity? Are you seeing more women coming into it? 
it, it's still a male-dominated industry, unfortunately, mm-hmm. but, it, but it is changing. We have a lot of women that are entering the profession, a lot of people from ethnic minorities that are coming in, and they're bringing in skills and perspectives that are really, really enriching the overall cybersecurity space. It's no longer the boys' club that it was 20 years ago, put it that way. And I think I think that's a, that's a great thing. If I look at the composition of my students at DU, there's a there's a very good mix of uh, different ethnicities, of different sexes. And I would say that men are in the, white men in particular, are in the minority now amongst the, uh, the incoming cybersecurity professionals. Well, that is, is great to hear. It really does sound like the cybersecurity field is ripe for a whole host of of different people uh from different backgrounds and experiences and uh, interest levels it's it's no cybersecurity used to be considered a, a nerdy profession right it was sure. one where you know tech heads went and stayed up all night and hacked you know until five in the morning and then got a couple of hours sleep and then got back to it again around noon after you know several quadruple espressos you know that was the era that i got into it and yes i stayed up and yes i you know i'm I'm prone today to drinking you know four cups of coffee before i even get to my email but it's it's no longer that sort of challenge that it once was of trying to break into systems right or red team as we say penetration test it's or blue teaming which is really defending actively defending against those types of attacks it's it's a, a broad broad spectrum of you know soft skills and hard technical skills that are coming together to defend against a growing and very well equipped very well motivated and very well financed adversary let's talk about how you get your foot in the door because i recognize as with a, a lot of industries there is a catch-22 situation where employers want you to have experience but how do you get experience if you can't get that first job right 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 that that's the challenge right and that is the, you know that is the that is the problem for a lot of people trying to enter enter the profession there's a massive need for more cybersecurity professionals in just about every single country in the world right cyber defenders are outnumbered at least 5 to 1 probably more at this stage cybercrime is a global pandemic in itself let alone covid right and it's run with almost total impunity from prosecution in China, Russia, and North Korea. In fact, you know, many of the cyber attacks are run and paid for by the governments in these countries. How you would deal, how the world deals with this problem in the long run remains to be seen. But so far, you know, there's that things have been allowed to continue and, and that results in us having to defend against attacks rather than strategically stop those attacks by you know other other political methods right in the meantime it's all hands to the pump to defend and protect our companies our businesses our schools families and friends right according to the cisco annual security report there's a 12x demand over supply for security professionals that means that there are 12 open security positions for every certified qualified or experienced experienced person able to fill the role. With odds like that, anyone entering the cybersecurity profession will have a lucrative job for life. But 
how do you get your foot in the door? So I wrote an article titled A Career in Cybersecurity in, in 2020. It can be found at cyberthoughts.org that talks about the catch-22 of posted job requirements, which unfortunately are many. My advice to individuals looking to get into this space center around two things, the ability and experience. In fact, they go hand in hand, right? You need to learn the skills to do the job. And that could be self-study and lots of late nights, as many of us you know, went through when we wanted to get into cybersecurity or when uh, cybersecurity was becoming an area of interest for us. It could be studying for a professional certification like you know, ISACA's uh, C-RISC or CISA or CISM or others such as the um, ISC squared CISSP, which is kind of like the, the pinnacle of cybersecurity certifications. Or it could be an academic program. Various universities and community colleges have a wide variety of courses, many of which are free if you qualify on everything from CompTIA Security Plus certifications to SANS GIAC certifications to associate's degrees, bachelor's degrees, and master's degrees programs. Um, entry-level positions typically require some combination of certification or qualification and experience. Uh, more senior-level positions will typically require proven capabilities and expertise combined with academic or certifications to match. Degrees cost time and money um, and effort, but may be worth it by the better salary and job responsibilities you'll receive as a graduate. Certificates cost time and money too, but will in addition require ongoing membership and annual fees to maintain your certification. This can get expensive over a long career and you know can be a little bit disheartening if you've you know, been paying fees for 20 years to maintain your certificate. And um, they tend to be very, certificates tend to be very good for people with, you know, two to three to 10 years experience and less important for those that have established careers. So they're useful for when you start out, but less important as you move on. And I think, you know, associates or, or bachelor's degrees are also very useful for when you're starting your career, because it gives you a broad spectrum of skills, a broad overview of most of the aspects of cybersecurity and therefore allows you to understand the bigger picture and to focus on areas that you maybe most interest you uh, and obviously we all we all have unique skills and we all find uh, our niche in the world based upon how happy we are you know exploiting particular skill sets in our in our resumes or in our in our capabilities mhm and like you have said several times, we need as many people to enter this field as as possible in order to be prepared for the future. My head is just swimming thinking about everything that you have said. And I have no idea how you sleep at night. <laughs> I don't. You know. But I'm up at four every morning working on something. No, I'm, I try to sleep, obviously, you know, but there's a lot of concerns out there. My, my approach to this is really to get on stage or to write articles in magazines and, and forums and on my blog and, and everywhere else talking about these risks and, and propagating that information sure. to as many people as I can so that they're aware. You Absolutely. know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And until such times as you know, we all wake up and smell the coffee, we're not going to do anything about it. You know, we're happy and ignorant in our, in our daily lifestyles. We're more concerned about having enough money to put Johnny into soccer lessons or, or anything else than we are really about securing Johnny's online presence. 
right? So that when he's 18 or and goes to take out a credit card, his credit score isn't trash because his identity was stolen as a four-year-old and has been used by you know Mexican drug cartels or other crime syndicates to you know for criminal or other nefarious purposes for you know for, for 15 years or more. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> well, Richard, it's been great talking to you. <laughs> Let's do this again, you know. Maybe not at nine o'clock at night because I don't think you'll sleep. But uh... <laughs> oh my gosh, no, uh, truly. I mean, this has been incredibly enlightening, and and I do hope that your efforts are heard. You know, I hope that all of the speaking and and the writing and everything that you do to push this information out to as many people as possible. I hope that it pays off and people get involved and and are inspired to get educated and skilled up and work in this space. I just had a new uh, new book published just before uh, before Christmas. Oh, let's hear about it. The Health Information Workforce. It's uh, it's a, a book published by a number of Australian academics that I work with, and I've done some guest lectures down under and and what have you. And uh, I contributed to a chapter there, working as a healthcare cybersecurity specialist with a number of security CISOs around Australia and other security leaders, ministers of government, security leaders, and uh, wrote about it. So it's the Health Information Workforce. It's uh, edited by Karen Butler Henderson, Karen Day, and Kathleen Gray out of Australia and New Zealand. And uh, that was launched in December. Well, congratulations on that. You're, you certainly don't have any idle time. <laughs> All those sleepless nights, you've got things to do to keep yourself uh, busy. Well, this has been fascinating and I do appreciate your time. And and yeah, I'm, I'm gonna go drink some calming tea and, and get on with my day. <laughs> <laughs> cool, all right. Well, I'm on to my next double espresso. All right, <laughs> take care, Richard. All right, Thanks so care, much. From workforce development to the adult learner experience in and outside the classroom, we're exploring the unique space where industry and higher education collide. Have a topic you're passionate about? Join our conversation by submitting suggestions or interview ideas through our website at universitycollege.du.edu forward slash elevated. I hope you'll subscribe and share this podcast with colleagues and friends who are also interested in fostering connections between industry and higher education. Thanks for listening.